Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and this episode, I'm excited to bring in my conversation with Matt Rennie, the joint MD of Rennie Consulting. He's actually co-MD with his wife, Simone, who's very talented and has achieved a lot in this area. We talked to Matt about the need to reduce carbon, how companies are going about that and some of the opportunities and some of the threats and complications that exist. We talked to Matt about a company that he's currently engaged to raise capital for that has a unique industrial thermal energy solution that's being deployed by one of the world's leading food manufacturing companies here in Australia. Matt also talks about some of the tips and traps for investors who would like to take advantage of the opportunity that the energy transition is presenting. Please remember that this podcast is made for information and entertainment purposes. It is not general or specific advice. People are encouraged to always do full due diligence and read any relevant PDSs or information memorandums. People are, however, encouraged to contact me if they want to. They can get hold of me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Matt Rennie, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me. Matt, perhaps you can kick us away as we like to do on the podcast and uh, tell us who we're talking to. So my name is Matt Rennie. I, I run a, a multidisciplinary firm um, called Rennie Advisory, which uh, is pitched at, um, at net zero and sustainability. So we try not to do anything that makes the problem worse. Uh, we've got five service lines, uh, strategy, capital advisory, ESG, business advisory, and we have uh, an energy reform group as well. And, and outside of work, what's your back? Well, firstly, what's your background to bring you to this type of work now? And, and maybe outside of work, what's your, your, what makes you tick? Sure. So I'm, I'm from Darwin originally, uh, and then I, I joined KPMG um, just after 2000 and was first exposed to industrial consulting. Uh, did that for, for three or four years and then thought I knew everything. So I created a, a small firm myself. Um, after about a year, we, we realised that perhaps we didn't have all the answers, but managed to grow it to eight or nine people uh, and then sold that to Ernst & Young in 2011. And that was a business primarily focused on energy market regulation and strategy. So it was a, a great, great way to, to learn how to actually do the work um, before uh, getting into a leadership role in EY. Tell me what's energy... Uh What's industrial consulting? Yeah, so all consulting is, is around understanding the problem, uh, scoping out an approach and figuring out the most effective way of answering it. Um, you know, when you're doing that for yourself uh, or with a couple of people, you can be a bit more bespoke. Uh, in a large organisation with thousands of people, um, it's obviously a much more rigorous and framework-driven process. And so my time in, e in KPMG was, was very useful in understanding that. Um, but then doing it on a very small scale, I think, made me do it much better uh, when I got to a very large scale at EY. And outside of the workplace, who's Matt Rennie? So, um, so myself and my wife, Simone, have got four kids. Uh, so we just live a, a, reasonably, um, a reasonably pleasant and, and uh, kind of slow-paced lifestyle. We, we try and work hard, but we're generally in bed by nine o'clock and uh, having yoghurt at eight. Very good. So sounds very wholesome. Uh, Matt, the focus on energy transition, uh, why? So when I was with EY, I had a, a number of interesting positions. Um, one, I was the, the leader of power and utilities across all of EY's service lines uh, for about 10 years in Australia. 
And secondly, I had a global role. So I led the utilities uh, strategy and transactions group for about eight years globally. And that really let me see the beginning of the energy transition in Europe uh, and also the, the introduction of coal seam methane in, uh, in the US. And, and both of those were really interesting. The, the coal seam methane revolution where we saw, you know, 300 wells become 3,000 wells completely changed the conventional generation mix over there. And then on the other side of the world, um, you know, Germany, for example, was a, a 90 gigawatt system that had 90 gigawatts of conventional uh, generation and then put an additional 90 gigawatts of renewables on top of it. And so both of those um, changes on the, the east and the west meant that all of the capital that used to be deployed for big generation uh, suddenly went looking for a home and, and watching that capital go across the world was was fascinating. Um, but at the same time, we saw this complete revolution uh, at the customer end as well with virtual power plants and batteries and solar as that became a bit more mainstream. And so, you know, for myself, being able to, to work in Mexico, Japan, the US, uh, you know, South Africa, UK, all around the world solving these sort of problems just really helped me to understand that the next 20 years are going to be a, a period of profound transformation for the world. And when I look on your website, it talks about the fact that you only work with companies that are working towards net zero. Is that a big enough market for a corporate advisory, strategic advisory consulting firm? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. We're not evangelical. So what we try to do is engagements that, that don't make either um, humanity or the environment in a worse spot than what it was. So we do a lot of work for oil and gas companies, for mining companies, for, for companies that are um, faced with either the opportunities that come from uh, these changes in the next 20 years around um, net zero or that are challenged by them and so need to diversify out. So we've done a variety of strategies for for, um, for coal companies, for uh, metallurgical coal terminals uh, and the like because, you know, the way that we heat ourselves, grow things and, and move ourselves around is going to be fundamentally changed in the next 20 years and, and those changes are sweeping through uh, at the moment. We're just really seeing the start of it. I really love that and it's always interesting. We have these debates about ESG and we've had lots of managers in with impact and ESG overlays and, you know, this debate about, well, if you're better off to engage these companies that are, you know, in the in social eye of doing bad or might be heavy polluters, but you can actually make changes from within and work with them and if you invest in them and, and work with them. But I, I really like that. Before we move on and dive in, I'm, I'm interested in talk about Rennie, the company that you've set up, and how long has it been going for now? Uh, just over two years. Okay. And and what's your head count? So we're just under 40 at the moment. We've got an office in every capital city. Uh, so we've grown really quickly. Really quickly. And and you've set that up with your co-managing your co -managing director, who's your wife, Simone? That's correct, yeah. So Simone was, uh, prior to this, was running the Energy Market Regulation Group at AEMO. Uh, she'd been at EY as well in the past. Um, and so it seemed like a natural um, bolt-on for, for our business to have someone who was such an expert in regulation. Uh, and I just had to convince her to come back to consulting, which was a, a bit of a mission, but uh, but she agreed. What's it like working with your wife? Look, I think um, people have working relationships and personal relationships. I think the trick with working with your partner is to put your work relationship first when you're at work and your personal relationship first when you're at home. Uh, and so... You know, everyone has a different power dynamic in, in their relationship. Um, you know, in a working sense, you need to have a complete respect for the other person's perspective um, from a fiduciary uh, responsibility, but also just because they, you know, they're very good at what they do. And in my case, Simone's very good at what she does, which which makes it just the, the perfect person to grow a business with. 
Terrific. Now, look, if we can step back a little bit and just sort of helicopter up and talk about the problem, the problem that we face uh, in global warming, the problem that we face in carbon zero, how would you articulate that, that to the person on the street? So we, we see it as two big changes that are coming through. And, and just to reiterate, our perspective isn't an evangelical one. It's a purely capitalist one. It's a purely, um, a purely commercial lens that we take on what we see coming. The, the first is that um, if you believe the science, then we are on track for, uh, for temperatures of about 2.7 degrees by 2100. And what that means is that it's going to be very difficult for things to grow in the same place that they grew, to have the same diversity of things growing, that rain is going to occur in different places and, and fire is going to occur at different intervals and with different intensities. And that means that in the long term, from a commercial perspective, markets will change. And there's a question around when that'll occur, whether it's 2050 or 27 or 2100, but we will definitely see alterations in, in both supply chain and downstream customer markets as a consequence of the physical change that'll occur. But then much more closer to home, or in, in a time sense, we have the reactions that government take in order to avoid those outcomes. And that's where we see net zero pledges and... and um, the types of agreements and alliances and obligations that come out of the various sort of COP26, COP27s that occur every year. And so those are occurring much more quickly. And we see that in things like safeguard and, and around the world as people, uh, as governments try to take these obligations that they've made, which are there to stop this physical impacts from happening. And they impose those in terms of policies. And you know, and they impose real challenges on companies. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities there as different technologies become useful. But, you know, for most companies, they see this as a cost and a complexity in the way of doing business. But, but ultimately, most strategy is around anticipating what's coming and then trying to think what to do about it. And that's where a lot of our work comes in just simply being able to articulate this first wave of change from the transitional risk uh, ahead of this broader wave of change in the physical risk. So I, I jumped on the CSIRO website before we came in to record today. And, you know, according to their data, if I look at the sources of emission, they're talking about something being 34% from fossil fuels being burnt to generate electricity, uh, another 20, 21% coming from manufacturing and mining, 17% coming from transport, 15% coming from ag. Um, what are you seeing companies do in that area or or that you can see is moving the needle? Yeah, so we break those down into into the three sources, so um, energy, transport and agriculture, mm -hmm. say. I mean, the energy market was already transitioning simply because the coal-fired power stations in Australia in particular were coming to the end of their useful lives. Uh, what we've seen happen now with, with technological advancement is that we've been able to um, both accelerate those changes and also to be able to create a new power system. And so energy was first. And so this this rise of renewable energy and battery storage and the like has, has really just occurred probably 10 years ahead of when it would have otherwise. Transport has been very interesting because the by 2026, uh, we're forecasting that the long-term um, cost of energy for passenger vehicles, which are internal combustion versus electric, will reach parity which means that we're probably all driving our last combustion vehicle at the moment. And that rise between 2030 and 2040 in mass proliferation of EVs is then going to cause enormous issues on the low-voltage electricity network. And so there'll be incredible investment that'll be needed in order for that to happen. Um, at the same time, of course, gas is coming out of the system, particularly up and down the streets, which in turn changes that again 
Um, so the electrification is going to be one of the big trends that we're going to see. And there's obviously affordability problems there, and we'll, we'll come back to that. The, the second is, um, well, sorry, the third after transportation uh, is, uh, is agriculture. And so, you know, what we have at the moment is a, a long-term situation where soil isn't sequestering as much carbon as it used to, simply because of the use of, of pesticides and, uh, and you know, um, additives which help us grow more food and, and more consistently. Um, what we're now seeing is a shift towards valuing carbon in the soil through, uh, through regenerative farming and the like and starting to monetize that. And so that's another market which, is, uh, which we think is really going to grow in the next few years. And are you involved across the spectrum there in the ag as well as energy and transport? Yeah, all three of those. So our strategy group tends to look at most likely scenarios and what people's least regret decisions are. Uh, we have a capital advisory group which raises capital and works with companies to, to try and um, find the capital they need to be able to grow. And then all the way through our various, um, our various lines of business, we're, we're working across all of, those, uh, all of those pillars. And talking about gas coming out of the system, um, is that government's mandating. I think there's discussions in Victoria, they might have even moved and even uh, in Sydney City about banning the installation of gas cooktops and those type of things, or is that deeper and wider? No, look, it's a really difficult situation um, from a practical perspective. Um, you know, gas is one of those things that um, has been there for a long time. The economics of gas pipelines are, are such that you lay a high pressure main around an area and then low pressure um, you know, sort of spaghetti through suburbs. And, and gas has always found it difficult, particularly in warmer climates, to, to make money simply because you need the addition of the various um, you know, space heating and, and cooking and, and hot water heating in order to make it work. When you um, decide, when a government decides that it's going to stop new um, connections in, in new reticulated subdivisions going ahead, it, it ring barks the economics of gas. And what that means is that uh, it becomes less commercially possible for, for gas to continue to be supplied. Um, and it, it's almost a wartime effort to remove gas uh, from a suburb. Not everyone can decide to do it. It's between fifteen dollars and $25,000 per customer to take it out. And so we think that removal of gas and, and the, the slowdown of gas is a serious issue for government involvement at some point. Um, it, it's one of those things that that is going to make it very hard for people from an affordability perspective. But if we look at the industrial customers, there are obviously many that, that don't have an option but to use gas uh, in making various things. And, and, you know, one example of that is, um, you know, say food manufacturer, which is, um, which is driven very much by steam boilers. And so in that situation where you've got companies that are using natural gas over a period of time and need to switch to something else, um, the real question is whether... Uh, gas will come out of the system or become too expensive before electricity is, is cheap enough uh, so that they can still make money. And across the spectrum of solutions, if you cross that over with the problem, which areas are you most excited about? Yeah, for us, it's really the new technology that bridges the gap. Uh, if we look at something like um, a natural gas boiler, which, say, um, might become uneconomic sort of beyond 2030 or so, the real question is uh, what will be there in order to bridge the gap between um, the, the end of gas or the, the, um, the, the removal of gas and, say, something like hydrogen, which might become commercial in 2035, 2040. And so for companies, particularly major industrial customers, uh, there's a real question around how they'll bridge that gap. And there's a lot of really interesting new technologies around, as they are in all aspects of, uh, of this whole net zero discussion which will, um, they're almost the unknown unknowns. They're, they're becoming 
Uh, people are investing in them. They're, they're hitting exactly the point at which um, customers and use customers will need to make decisions. And it's a really exciting part of our job. And Matt, it's interesting. I've seen um, reports and, and, and anecdotal evidence from large multinationals where they're, they're making these broad uh, claims in the market that they're moving to net zero by a certain time. There's lots of pressure on them. There's also pressure in a very lo- tight labour market when they're hiring and their people and their culture, they're making these commitments. Um, one of those large multinationals, I think, called in the external consultants um, to, to put them up a report that sort of says, what's, what's going to be the cost of this? And that number came back at about $3.5 billion dollars albeit that the technology doesn't exist today to get there to get there what are some of the things you see those companies doing today to try to help them on that path so it's it's one of these situations where companies have to balance the various demands of the stakeholders they've got um, from an insurance perspective there's now an increased demand for transition plans so that uh, for insurance companies to feel comfortable continuing to insure and banks are doing this the same with finance um, you know, provide funds or, or protection through to companies. They want to know that they're at least aware of what's coming and that they're planning to do something about it. And by what's coming, I mean that that transition and that physical risk. Um, what we're seeing at the moment is is companies balancing these up, and and some companies swim too far out from shore uh, in the sense that that what they do is is perhaps a, an overcompensation, and that can lead to short term costs and difficulty. Um, and others are, are putting their heads in the sand and, and there's a sort of cognitive dissonance. And really the, the right answer is to step back and to think, what's the most likely future scenario that we have? And that's to get some consensus around that, around the board table and the management table, and then to very carefully weigh it out such that the decisions you're making are least regrets. And in a lot of cases, the, the new technology investments that we're seeing are, are really being pointed towards that. Um, investments where, for example, you can... Um, you know, produce steam in alternative ways, and we're working with with uh, a particular company around that, which is um, which is quite interesting. And it's just an example of the types of technologies that um, that are, are now becoming evident, um, where where those companies, uh, for example, international food processing companies that that have to continue to make food um, cost effectively over time, uh, now will have more options just because of these new technologies that are coming along. So, if I've got that right, you've got you know, multinational food companies with, and I, I think there's even a hive of these in Victoria where um, for some reason they're, they're, they seem to be housed um, and they're using at the moment gas-fired um, boilers or, or similar, which has a, a carbon emission um, trait to it and they're looking for solutions to do that in a carbon neutral man- manner and, and you're working with a company that's got some technology that allows them to do that. What do they do and how do they do that? Yeah, so um, it, it's, it's quite an interesting part of the market because companies that, that make food at an industrial scale are often international companies and, and they tend to be um, you know, very, very large uh, international companies which have made obligations in, in Europe uh, that they're going to shift to net zero. Now, that might mean that in the short term um, that, that some of the decisions they make, um, you wouldn't say uh, were, were at parity this week or, or this month, but they will become increasingly cost-effective over time. And when we start to see policies that, that make the usage of gas much more expensive, um, and, you know, we expect that to occur because governments are making these commitments every year at the various um, COP meetings, 
then that'll make it much more difficult for these large these large companies if they're not prepared. And so this particular circumstance um, is one where where there's a technology company which uh, which takes um, graphite blocks and heats them up with renewable energy and then uses that to make steam and, and they actually work in in tandem. Uh, with the gas boilers so they can work at the same time. And, and that's uh, actually in place at, at one of these international food companies at the moment. So that's in place and working today. And and is that typically, or do you expect that to be done as a green premium? You're talking about this point with electrification of transport and, you know, you expect 26 for parity. Do you expect there to be much of a green premium for most of these industrial solutions um, in the short term or in the long term, do you see the technology driving that down pretty quickly? Oh, no, I think the technology, the technology, I think, at scale will drive that down very quickly. But the counterfactual, of course, is that the alternatives, that the price of, the, of those is rising. And what we saw over the last two years, particularly in relation to gas, is, mm-hmm. is large, um, you know, large movements um, upwards just because of, of instability globally. And so there is much more of a focus now on being able to to really to take control of as much as you can of your own supply base. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I had Mike Lucan from Rock, Cap- Rock Capital in that seat uh, a few podcasts ago and, uh, you know, I loved his quote of follow the money. And uh, in this case, the economic sense, and you right at the start said, you know, this isn't all about altruism. Um, there's actually economic cases here. And you, you referenced that there are... Um, Lots of businesses facing this as a cost and otherwise, but others looking at it as a real commercial opportunity. Where do you think investors can think about this as, you know, deploying their own capital? Where are they likely to get traction and how, what are some of the themes that, that they can take? You know, we're, we've been doing a lot of work on AI and where about in the technology stack, whether you want to own chips through NVIDIA or data sets or... Um, if you want to be in the software space or you want to be in the companies that are trying to create, you know, Siri talking better through AI. In the energy transformation landscape, where, where do you think people can hone in and invest within their portfolios, you know, in their self-managed super funds or otherwise? What type of companies do you think they can talk about and what sort of technologies or themes can they focus on? Well, I mean, thematically, the things that interest us at the moment are, are these these new ways of, of manufacturing um, away from or in tandem with reduced uh, amounts of natural gas. We think that's a that's a really interesting trend that we're watching really carefully because it hits both an affordability trend uh, and, and it also hits just this continuity of business. I mean, it's entirely plausible that some of these large manufacturing companies um, you know, there's an assumption they'll just switch to electricity, but but they just simply won't have that option. It'll be a choice of of insolvency or uh, or continuing on exactly as they are. Um, the second thematic that we really like at the moment is the pressure on the low voltage electricity system, uh, with EVs coming in. Um, you know, something like five EV charges in a street will blow a 200 amp transformer, which is your standard transformer that you'll have um, in in a suburb. Um, but with natural gas coming out as well, you, you're seeing a, a massive increase in the amount of power that individual households are using. And that's occurring at part of the electricity network that's almost completely invisible because there's there's no uh, monitoring detection which takes place uh, up and down the streets uh, for a network. Um, the third th- thematic that we, we really like is soil. Um, we think that, that soil is going to be um, a revolution from two perspectives. The first is that soil, as I mentioned before, doesn't sequester as much carbon as it used to because of its, um, just because of the quality of soil generally. And so once that begins to monetize, it's going to be very exciting. 
But secondly, there's a phenomenal link between the quality of soil uh, to the quality of food and, and to the quality of the, the health standards in a population. And you know, whilst we're all uh, living a lot longer these days, our last 20 years are generally spelt, uh, generally spent immobile and 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 un, uh, and reasonably unhealthy. And so, you know, these thematics have, have overtaken the ones of say five or 10 years ago, which were, um, you know, will will coal compete with renewables? We we think that's mainstream now. Um, but for us, it's all about the increasing electrification uh, of the system. Um, I, I guess, and lastly, it's this this con this continuum between. Um, DER, so solar and batteries, um, load control, so being able to turn things off at the switchboard mm -hmm. um, and then um, bringing that up into control of a site, uh, controlling EVs, controlling batteries and then discharging that load back into the system. Uh, there's an enormous amount of activity occurring in that, what we call behind the meter space. Yeah, we had, um, it, we, we had Cam, Cam Banks of PEP in your seat recently talking about uh, their investment in in telehub and the smart meter that sits behind that, um, you know these concepts that are being talked about. People, you know, the the, the local tradesman with their F one hundred or an electric F one hundred, and that the size of that battery may be big enough to run part of the house overnight if it's charging mm. on site during the day, etc. And that and that's how you hit these, you know, the, the grid and the network generation is very disparate and looks very different in how the load management of that comes around. Lots that's, of that's exactly right. I mean, the, the latest edition of these EVs, the batteries can run a house for three days. It, it's incredible. Wow. What areas in the market or themes do you look at and you just go, oh, this looks like somebody's trying to profit here. Whenever there's huge change, um, and we've seen this a little bit, if you look at the NDIS um, rollout, of affordable housing, you know, they, they, you've seen a hell of a lot of builders in our view come into that area that aren't, you know, they, they've seen a big money sign. And I suspect in this whole energy transition, there'll be lots of money made, but there's also going to be lots of money lost. Where do you think are some of these areas that you'd be going, you'd be thinking, well, gee, I might just wait and see how that plays out, or I'm a little bit skeptical of that, where you see funds flowing at the moment? Uh, for, well, there's a couple. I mean, the the, the area of, of renewable project development is one that's that's very overheated at the moment, and and those listeners that are in, involved in that process would know that those prices are moving in a way that that is going to make affordability um, quite difficult. So in, these in are solar farms. Time. Yeah, solar farms, wind farms. Mm -hmm. um, you know, five years ago you couldn't give a project away in, in this country, and, and now everybody wants them, and so we're seeing uh, an incredible heating up of of that market. Uh, these are these are prior to construction uh, assets, so you know in a similar way to what you might develop a block of, uh, of an office block, you, you develop a renewable power project. So, to hold on, I'm I'm a bit confused there because you said it's very hot and there's a lot of demand for it, but you're concerned about it. Is that the the ones that are yet to be built, um, and the ones that are built, you're you're okay with? Yeah, the ones that that are in the ground and are producing mm -hmm. uh, are just simply producing an IRR, but. Um, but there's been a lot of international money flow into the, the Australian market wanting to, to own projects um, prior to construction, mm -hmm. and that's inflated the, the costs of the development um, in, in many cases. And so there are some, some large numbers being bandied around um, out there, which uh, will make it difficult for affordability generally um, if, if that um, if that continues to occur. But the other one, I guess, is hydrogen. And, and people have got a lot of opinions about hydrogen, and, and obviously there's been a lot of money raised and and a lot of markets that it's directed to. I mean, our analysis has shown that that it really is quite difficult um, to to produce hydrogen at two dollars a kilo. 
um, that it does compete with natural gas and that the majority of users for it um, are quite low, thin margin industries. If, if you're making margarine, for example, or, or, uh, or glass, um, you don't have the ability to triple one aspect of your supply chain um, and to increase your, your gas cost from a dollar up to, you know, whatever the, the green, um, the array of green hydrogen costs might be. And so that's an area where we're a little bit cautious. Um, but, but generally speaking, the, the thing we find most interesting at the moment is, is just the proliferation of impact funds. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's LPs in particular um, having expectations um, of GPs that, that they will, um, that they'll be investing in impact type investments. Uh, impact investments, as many of your listeners would know, are, are quite difficult to find and quite difficult to verify. Um, but we, we have just seen a, a proliferation of these funds, particularly in the US over the last 12 months. And a lot of that money is now coming to Australia, which is great because it means diversity of term sheets and the like in, in Australia and, and some different, um, some different preferences sort of coming in. Um, but it also, um, you know, creates a, a real opportunity for, for quality technologies and quality platforms to actually be able to access capital to grow. Is there too much money chasing too fewer opportunities in that space? In the impact space, absolutely. And, and that's not because there's too few opportunities. It's, it's really twofold. The first is that impact funds, as you know, have, have a screening process they need to go through, but then there's a, a baselining and, and an assessment of, of whether something is going to be able to um, both credibly and, and, and in an attributable way reduce greenhouse gas emissions over time. And, and that's just part of the, the investment screening and, and you know, well before you get to the economics. That's quite difficult for, in, for impact funds to be able to deploy. Um, you know, we find, for example, by curating those investments before we take them out to that market, we can get through those initial gates, uh, which means that, that you know, for, for those types of investments, there's a ready home. But there certainly is a lot of impact funds with dry powder that are struggling to, to navigate that maze. Matt, thank you very much. I, congratulations on the success you've had. Congratulations on being able to help the commercial world make money out of doing something that looks like it's going to have a very positive impact on the world. Thanks for that. It's, it's one thing to make money out of something that's nefarious, but uh, doing it this way must, much make, must make your head hit the pillow well each night at nine o'clock after that yogurt. Thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Thanks so much, David. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.